This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 294. And the quote of the day is, the greatest fear in the world is of the opinion of others. And the moment you are unafraid of the crowd, you are no longer a sheep and you become a lion. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. Hey yo, what's going on everybody? Nick Ruffini here. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. This is session 295. And if you are interested in getting an email every Monday with the latest release or every Friday with the wrap up of what re- what was released that week, uh, head over to drummersresource.com. You can join the email list. You'll also get a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. It's 11 creative exercises to help you with your speed, your independence, your chops. That's 100% free. Just... Head over to drummersresource.com and you can grab that. And let's get into this conversation. So this conversation was recorded in Hollywood, California. It was recorded at Musicians Institute. And as you know, MI is the official education partner for Drummers Resource. And if you're interested in stepping up your game and you really want to take your career to the next level, I recommend checking out mi.edu. They have all sorts of courses. They have electronic, they have drumming cores, they've all every instrument that you can think of. You can learn the music business, you can learn Ableton Live. They have world class faculty, they have world class facilities. But the faculty are people who have been there who have done that. We're talking guys like Gordon Campbell and Kenny Arnoff. I mean guys who have, have been there and done that are the people who are going to be teaching you how to take your career to the next level. So check them out at MI.edu and I want to send a special thanks to them for allowing me to use uh, am I to record this, uh, to use one of the rooms there? And I met Bermuda Schwartz there and we hung out, did this interview. And the one thing is that we're at a music school. So we are kind of close to another practice room. So there's parts of the interview that you can hear some drumming in the background and it doesn't go through the whole thing, but there's little uh, spots of the interview where you can hear the uh, the drums going on. So I'm sure Justin did a great job getting out as much as he could, but you can't get rid of it 100%. So that's what you're hearing in the background. But like I said, it's recorded at a music school in the drum department. So uh, so that's what you're hearing. I figured it's, it's not horrible. It's not like it's a construction scene and it's a drumming podcast, so we can let it slide. Uh, this conversation with Bermuda is super interesting because he's been playing in the Weird Al Yankovic band since 1981. I don't know anyone who's had a longer gig than that. And the thing that is really impressive about it is for those of you who don't know who Weird Al Yankovic is, he does, you know, uh, parodies of all popular music or pop tunes out there. But They've managed to cross the crossover and be a commercial success and sort of a comedy success at the same time. They sold millions of records. They tour all the time. They sell out huge venues. They have loyal fans. And, and, you know, Bermuda talks about it in this interview or this conversation that the music is still legitimate music. I mean, these guys are playing. It's very, it's tight and they put a lot of time into it. And just because the words are funny doesn't mean that these guys aren't playing some serious music. So a really interesting conversation. We talk about the idea of, of having a day job and how Bermuda saying that he had a day job for a long time, even while he was playing with, with Weird Al Yankovic. And, and, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of 
not always having to play music full time and just do that and wear that like a badge of honor. So some great insight for someone who's been in and out of a day gig uh, for a long time. And he's stopped doing the day gig, but but for a while he he was doing both. So just a really great conversation, a ton of information in there and just some golden nuggets. So without further ado, I'll stop yapping and we're going to get into it with the one and only John Bermuda Schwartz. Let's get rolling. We got the we got the record button on. We are here. We're uh, we're at Musicians Institute, and thanks for coming to, into Hollywood to thank to meet you me. for having me. So where about where are you at? So you're outside of the city a little. Uh, bit? I live. It's a suburb of L.A. called Torrance. Oh, okay. Uh, it's right by LAX by the airport. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's it's L.A. You yeah. know, down here everything's L.A. Yeah. So I just say I live in L.A. But uh, there's there's a hundred thousand some odd people in Torrance. Oh, uh, some are odd. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> And uh, but it's freeway close to everywhere I want to be, and it's just uh, you know it's about 15 miles south of Hollywood. It's right. not uh, it's not too far off the close to the path. airport. It's perfect. I, I'm very close yeah. to the airport. That's nice, and That's nice. Uh, it's cool. So you, I know you were born in Chicago, yeah, right. Yeah. But how old, how old were you when you moved to LA? Because you were pretty young, right? I well, from Chicago, my family went to Phoenix. Okay. Uh, I, I found them a few years later. They had gone to Phoenix, apparently. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's great having drums right here. It is. You, it never, is. you never know if I'll say something funny. Um, no, we, we moved to Phoenix. I was three and a half when I left Chicago. So, I mean, I, I have very dim memories right. of that. Lived in Phoenix throughout most of the 60s mm-hmm. and, and moved permanently to L.A. in late 68. Okay. So I, I have uh, been here almost 50 years. So when, when did you start playing? I started playing. I was in Phoenix, and I was nine years old. I just turned nine, and I played drums because, there's, well, one, I had taken accordion lessons of all things mm-hmm. <laughs> prior to prior to uh, drumming. All right. My brother had taken drum lessons. He took drum lessons in in Chicago mm-hmm. when we lived there, and so there was a drum set in the house. He switched to guitar, and about that time, I dropped the accordion and switched to drums. Yeah. So we moved his drums across the hall into my bedroom, and I started taking drum lessons. Cool. Did you guys, did you guys play a lot together though? Uh, no, actually, no. not not at the time. That was 1965. Okay. By the way, it's like September of 65. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, we didn't really play together because that, that concept of of siblings at, at that age doing that weren't really. He was already a teenager, so he was right. like too old for that. Oh, uh, he's like, yeah, I'm I'm too cool to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Plus, he played that uh, that country and western music. Right. <laughs> and I was listening to the Beatles and, okay. and you know, a lot of pop and stuff. Right. So uh, we musically we were pretty far apart. Mm-hmm. But I took his drums, uh, a set of uh, Ludwig Transition Badge, very nice, nice sweet three-piece kit, yeah. which I wish I still had. I was just going to say, I bet you wish you still had that kit. I, I think most drummers, most players go through a period, well, go through a, a regret of not having kept their early gear. Yeah. And if I'd had any idea 50-some-odd years ago that I might want to see that stuff again, yeah. I certainly would have hung on to it. I mean, I didn't let go of it because I made a killing selling it or because it broke or anything like that. Right. I just, it's just like, I oh, thought, I'm going to get... Oh, these, these old drums, yeah, you know, I got rid of those. Yeah. And uh, and I wish I had them. I mean, they were sure. grades of blue and silver Duco and just... Uh, Oh, a wonderful, a wonderful sounding kit. In fact, when I got them, they still had the original calf heads on them. Oh, really? Because nobody, you know, he never played hard enough to go through the heads. Right. So, you know, I did, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty pretty soon. So I learned to change heads early on and how to mm-hmm. tune and stuff like that. Right. But that's how I got started drumming. There were drums in the house. Hmm. I took lessons. Even though I had a kit at home, 
uh, the lessons where I was taught to read mm -hmm. and literally, you know, how to hold the sticks, basic rudiments, just on a snare. Yeah. Uh, there was no kit. You know, eventually the, the guy brought in a cymbal so I could work my right hand. And there was, I guess, no room for a bass drum. So he says, well, here, tap your foot on one, two, and three, <laughs> and four and play the cymbal on the eighths. And, you know, and taught me sort of by proxy how to mm -hmm. play a kit. Although I'd go home and then I'd, I'd let loose on the kit and put on Beatles records and stuff like that. So was it a reason that there wasn't enough room for a drum kit in there? Or was that, was he still, because, you know, years ago, it was like you get a practice pad. Once you figure out the practice pad, then you can move on to this thing, and then you can move on to this thing. And be, you know, de depending on how old the guy was, I know that some people were really strict about it if they were super old school. Well, he was he was probably in his early twenties, so oh, okay. he was sort of the young drummer about town. You know, and it was in a music store; it wasn't mm -hmm. really a private lesson per se. Right. And uh, the, we were just in a little tiny room. Mm. And, and so there physically wasn't room, but he did start me first on the snare and, and then, you know, he gradually got me into what would be a kit situation. Right. But he taught me rudiments. He taught me how to read, which has been uh, just invaluable yeah. uh, throughout my career. And not that, not that people put music in front of me to read, but so that I can write music sure. and put it in front of myself right. and, and read it back. Uh, it's, I, I don't know if there's any other way I could do that. I mean, I, I know what tabs are, and I don't mm -hmm. know if that's really, for me, that wouldn't be very efficient. Do you I think never, reading I, and writing is a dying craft a bit? Uh, I think for drummers it is. Yeah. I, I think if you're playing a, a melodic instrument, you know, a piano, a piano sure. or a horn or something like that, I, I think you, you automatically have to read music, mm -hmm. uh, un unless you're not going to at all. Right. I don't think there's any way to get around it. And and I guess to be a drummer, you don't absolutely have to read. I'm glad that I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I encourage people to read. Uh, you know, I'm on a couple of the major drum forums, and, uh, you know, somebody will come on and ask about, well, how do I develop this? I say, well, go get a book. There's a thousand books out there. Right. You know, go get a book. It's it's economical. You can work at your own pace. Mm -hmm. uh, it's right there. You know, you take as long or as short as you want. Well, I, I can't read music. Okay. Get it with a teacher. Learn to read music. Right. And go get some and, books. And then go do and that. And not to put teachers out of work because there's a lot of interactivity that needs yeah. to happen person to person. It mm -hmm. can't all be learned from a book. can't all be learned by watching a YouTube video. Right. There's got to be someone there to show you, to tell you when you're not doing something right, to demonstrate what something sounds like, to demonstrate the, the angle of the stick on the snare. To mm -hmm. do, you know, there are certain things have to be done in person and sure. not for a lifelong pursuit. I mean, I don't know that you need to take lessons forever. Right. I think it's a good start. I know there's a lot of pros take lessons from some other well-established educators because right. those guys just know stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, there and was, sometimes you got to get sort of get out of that, like you got to get out of your own headspace and have somebody just evaluate and say, oh, yeah, yeah maybe you need to think, oh, I didn't think about that. And then, yeah, you know, another perspective is always a good thing. Sure. You know, nobody knows at all. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows more than somebody. <laughs> right. So there's a lot to be learned out there. From uh, from other teachers, there's a lot of guys. There's guys that haven't been playing ten years that can teach me stuff. Right. Uh, you know, and and vice versa. And there's guys. You know, that there was. Uh, God, I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the names. Uh, there was a, a major teacher, Freddie Gruber, mm -hmm. here in town. Uh, was a major teacher to the stars. Oh yeah, of course. And I don't know that he was known as anything other than a teacher. I couldn't tell you who he ever played with. None of that. But he taught the, the major guys. Murray yeah. Spivak. Was was very much a, a you know a, a technician instructor mm -hmm. kind of molar technique kind of thing right. uh, here in town you know guys like that who really were just known as educators right uh, you know they didn't it's not like well where did he come from what's his background well he's major educator oh well, that's good enough and he taught pros things they didn't know yeah or showed them how to do things easier or brought new things to them and probably learned a lot from some of those guys I mean Vinny probably could have taught Freddie a few things yeah and vice versa sure you know yeah. uh, so so there is the, you know I don't want to say it's not a lifelong thing but to get into reading once you can read you can read right you know you can't 
be taught how to read better. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of doing it. So once you're at a level where you can read, and it could take you know the, the four weeks, could take four months, whatever, then you can get into books, you can get into those things that are already there for you, that are resources. And at some point, you do need to sit down with someone. Right. Uh, you know, it's just, like I'd like to learn to play tambourine, proper mm -hmm. tambourine, Motown tambourine, yeah. not orchestral. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, just watch watch the videos, or just listen and just hit the tambourine with those accents. Like, yeah, I know it's just that, but it's got. There's, there's more, a lot more to it. I need somebody to show me. There's got to be some little thing that I'm not getting. Right. You know, it's like, well, you don't need a teacher to learn to play drums. You pick up sticks and and the little small round end, and you hit the drums with them and make drum sounds. <laughs> you know, and play drum parts. Yeah, but there's. There's a lot more to There's it. There's more to yeah. it. So, that, so, for example, that's something I, I really would like to go to a teacher yeah. and learn that kind of tambourine. Or you can watch, uh, who was it, George Benson's bass player. He used to play the tambourine with his foot. Oh, Oh, see, that's something I got to learn too. Play, yeah, we'll put that on your list. Yeah, there's a video of them playing Breezin on YouTube, and and uh, and you hear a tambourine, and then they pan over, and it's the bass player, and they pan down, and his foot's going like, and he's playing the tambourine on. <laughs> see, I'd like to learn tabla as well, but I don't think I'm going to live long enough. Right, yeah, that takes like 30 years. <laughs> yeah. I've got 30 years to learn that. Anyway, I, I, I digressed. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I think it's important to, to talk about that. And, you know, the, the idea of reading, you know, what I've, what I've always heard is that the only way to get better is to do it. You know, re read a lot, write a lot, read a lot, write a lot. And I didn't realize how, I didn't realize how fortunate I was, how fortunate I was. I played piano for nine years and then didn't play any instruments for a while. And then when I got, when I was in college and I was, you know, all the other drummers were sort of struggling with this. And I was thinking, this isn't, it's not that hard. And you realize that once you, once you get over the initial hurdle of, okay, basic note values, you figure out how rhythm works. It's not that hard. It seems really daunting in the beginning. Yeah. But once you, you know, like you said, four weeks or four, I mean, in four months, you could make a lot of progress oh, yeah. to yeah. just figure, I mean, you may not be able to write an orchestral score, but you can at least, Yeah, you know, there's only so many notes and so many values. Right. And, and so many places on the staff in which they appear. Mm -hmm. There's only, uh, with drums, there's only so much you can do. And once you've learned it, you've learned it. Yeah, that's you know? it. Uh, and then sometimes you have to learn how other people write drums. Yeah. Like someone who's a melodic player uh, frequently will use tied notes, mm -hmm. which means little to a drummer. Yeah, it shouldn't. In orchestral, it means a lot. But you know, for drum set playing, you know, tied notes. Those, those, I can always tell when a non-drummer <laughs> wrote a part. Uh, it's like, oh, that's the, you know, some arranger wrote this. Obviously, mm -hmm. not a drummer. I, yeah. I make uh, a very liberal use of rests and and note values yeah. to to line up exactly. You know, so that any other drummer could sit and read it. Mm -hmm. um, Dude, what about the idea of thinking like that, though? Thinking of you know t of tied notes, or thinking of elongating your playing, like you know, in terms of hearing. Because I don't think we as drummers hear the whole note value. A quarter note sounds like an eighth note. Right. So no, exactly, possibly except for a cymbal. Sure. But even then, you're not going to pay that much attention. You know, you either choke a cymbal or you let it ring. Right. You're not going to assign a, val a, a length value to it. Mm -hmm. So you're you're lucky and you're smart having come from a melodic background yeah. with piano, particularly Lock piano. more than, than smarts. Well, but, but you know what, having a chromatic um, right. background, having, having a, somewhat of a melodic agenda, I, I think would be very important for drummers. I never had that. And we have a piano in the house. I've had a piano in the house for years. And I just, and I can find C, the C scale, by hitting enough right notes to make sure they play the proper scale. I say, yeah. oh, that's where C is. Right. 
That's next to a black note, I know that. <laughs> See, but I, I think a melodic background would be good for, for uh, drummers, just not that they need to use it, but so they can talk to other players. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly hopeless when I'm talking to other players yeah. in terms of, you know, what's a minor and what's, uh, you know, what's uh, augmented and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, it's like, and, and it's like, yeah, we'll go to that thing where the note goes blue. Yeah. Kind of, you know what I mean. And, and they know that I don't know, and that's, <laughs> and that's fine. You know, and I mean, I can I can play drums and that's it. And I I, just, I don't have the same kind of appreciation for other music as someone that's got a melodic background. Right. So that's something I wish I had done. Mm -hmm. And even and, and I did start on accordion. I was so young and it came and went so quickly. Right. I can I can hardly stopped. imagine having been able to work my fingers that way and read notes and and, uh, you know, the note values and and the actual notes mm -hmm. at that age and to have completely forgotten it. Right. I mean, it's not in there anywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just it's gone. But I mean, you hear as a drummer, you hear changes and all that. Oh, sure. Can, yeah. Sure. You know, and I and I know. Okay, well, you know, okay, we're going to take it at the modulation, and mm -hmm. okay, this guy, this is where he stays on the one. I mean, I know certain sure. terms, but I wasn't taught that. It's just things I picked up along the way. It would right. have been good stuff to know 30, 40 years ago. Sure. You know, I don't know that it ever held me back. Could have made things a little nicer. Yeah. You know, could have made made me look a little less stupid in front <laughs> of my fellow bandmates and and some bands I've been in for a long time. Yeah. Uh, not just Weird Al. Right. Who I've been with since 1980. Yeah. But there's which, uh, that's, that's insane. which is a, a very long time. Actually, 30, I'll, I'll, thirty-seven years. I'll uh, it's this September will be thirty-seven years. Wow. And and uh, I, uh, you know, people say, well, that's a long time. I said, well, we we have a and it, not only not only have I been with them, the uh, bass player and guitar player have been with them since the beginning of nineteen eighty-two. They came in and recorded the first album. Oh wow! So they've been on board, and it's been the same band this whole time mm -hmm. on the records, on the road, in the videos. It's been the band. Now there aren't very many bands no. like that. Oh, and well, there's there's a few bands like that. You got Aerosmith, mm -hmm. you got U2. You know, bands that have been around more than say 35 years. Yeah. Cheap Trick doesn't qualify anymore. Yeah. Bunnies. Yep. In fact, Tom Peterson came and went, so that sort of doesn't. Come. Stones or that's God knows who the original members yeah. are now. Yeah. Uh, who else? There's only a couple. And ZZ Top. Yeah. I think there's four or five maybe. But and I hate not to brag. They're not writing new music for the most part. Maybe Aerosmith, maybe U2. They're yeah. not having number one records. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, we're the only artist, we're the only band out there that's been a solid band, is still making new music and still having hit albums. So when was the, when's the last record that you released? Well, the last one came out in July of 2014. 2014, and that was, that was a number one, right? That debuted at number one on Billboard charts. Like on the real, not comedy charts. We, right. always, we always on comedy charts. No, the Billboard 200. That's insane. Up against all the mainstream artists. Right. So let's rewind a little bit about how, how this gig started. So you guys were on you guys were on a radio station, right? This is how I heard it. Well, the, now, Dr. Demento, okay. who, who uh, had a syndicated radio show. Actually, he was just on in Los Angeles uh, in the beginning. Uh, I started listening to him in 71. I think Al did, too. Mm -hmm. We didn't know each other back then. Yeah. Uh, I sent some stuff into Dr. Demento. He had a contest in 1973. Uh, you know, all of the musicians out there, I want you to make your own version of this particular song and send it in. And the uh, the number one version will uh, win a cop a seventy eight of that record. It was a song mm -hmm. called Pico and Sepulveda. So my buddies and I now in school band we didn't have guitar players and you know bass players and stuff like that. Right. There were horn players, you know sax and 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 uh, trombone and trumpet and mm -hmm. flute and French horn and stuff like that. And so I had some of my buddies from the school band come in. A guy named uh, Richard Elliott on sax. Well-known sax yeah, player, yeah, of course, uh, was on Pico and Sepulveda with us, <laughs> which he was a little mortified when I reminded him of that some years later. <laughs> I don't know if he knows what happened, but you know how I, you know that that eventually led to my meeting Al. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and ironically, Al and some of his buddies sent in a version of that too. They did not place. We, well, our version came in second, mm -hmm. and he used it uh, as the uh, music on his show to to do the intro to the show because we did an instrumental, so okay. he could talk over it. Yeah. So he liked our version, even though we weren't number one. Uh, he he played ours. We got heard every week on the show for like a year, year and a half. So we thought, oh, this is pretty cool. We'll we'll we, we'll send him something else. Yeah. So we sent him another song. Uh, you know, not immediately, but mm -hmm. some months later, and uh, that got played on the radio. <laughs> and you know, wow, this is really cool. About a year and a half later, we sent him another song, and that got played on the radio. I said, like, oh, this is this is too much. Now he wasn't. Not too many people had their stuff played on the radio back then. He he played a lot of old hits, a lot of old novelty songs, a lot of right. jazz records, things like that. But a lot of all commercial stuff. Mm -hmm. So around 1980, uh, my brother, the one that was playing guitar, um, he I should. There's there's so many I could write a book. I'm gonna write. <laughs> you gonna, should. I'm gonna recite it right now. He ended up uh, uh, coming to Los Angeles and uh, ended up in the studio scene. Very mm -hmm. heavy. He came in and worked with most of the guys in the Wrecking Crew oh, okay. on the tail wow. end of that. Uh, Al Casey and Hal Blaine and all the you know all the guys. Nice. And uh, in fact, my very first recording session was with Al Casey, Steve Douglas on sax, who the late Steve Douglas mm -hmm. also, but also from the Wrecking Crew, and my brother on guitar. Cool. In like 1970. Uh, at any rate, so he ended up in Neil Diamond's band. Uh, the, one of the keyboard players in Neil's band, Tom Hensley, was a friend of Dr. Demento's and had produced an album by one of the big groups on the Demento show. Mm -hmm. This is 1980. So Demento asked if uh, asked Tom to ask Richard and me, knowing that I'm, you know, I'd never met Demento before, if we wanted to come down and watch him do the show. So we did. So I got to meet Demento, and he invited me back for an interview talking about the bands and stuff I was in at the time. Cool. And about having, you know, I was one of the first people to have homemade music played on the show. Mm -hmm. So, And I can't take complete credit because all the other guys who were playing were really playing, and I was just drumming, and, and uh, somehow, the, well, I put my name on the project. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so we came back, and, and the date was, or uh, I came back for this interview, and the date was September 14th, 1980. And now by this time, Weird Al was already on the show. He was a regular. He was doing stuff live on the air. He mm -hmm. was sub submitting parodies and stuff like that, you know, just his homemade stuff. Right. Nothing commercial, but he was just one of the sort of cast of characters on the show. So he was there that night. So I, And I'd heard of him, actually. So I, uh, I met him, did the interview, and he was doing a new song that night that he had just written that weekend called uh, Another One Rides the Bus, and it was a parody of Another One Bites the Dust right. by Queen. So he asked if I would, now there's there's just, you know, a bunch of sort of cast members there, people that answered phones or, you know, made noises and stuff like that, you know, just sort of the regulars on the show. So he asked everyone to do stuff on, on the song, you know, he had his accordion with him, mm -hmm. and uh, he asked if I would beat on his accordion case, you know, and just play straight quarters, right. and just kind of that would be the percussion. So I thought, why not? Yeah. So Demento, fortunately, was rolling tape on that, and that became a single. Huh. Uh, the way the way Al sort of progressed from there is, and the doc, Dr. Demento was syndicated at the time by Westwood One Radio Networks. Uh, and about two two weeks later, elements from the live show would get worked into the show that went out to stations around the country. Right. Almost two hundred stations. So another one rides the bus ends up on uh, on the national show. And, you know, usually it played on Sunday nights. Now, in a lot of the big markets, they'd have the uh, wacky morning zoo guys yeah. doing their stuff, you know, from 6 to 10 a.m. or whatever. You know, drive time. Mm -hmm. Very important. A lot of listeners yeah, yeah. sitting in their cars hearing ads, songs, etc. And a lot, so a lot of those guys would source stuff from the Dr. Demento show that aired the night before, you know, wacky songs right. to play on their wacky show. Sure. So they pulled 
another one rides the bus, and now we're getting played like in drive time, like in Houston and Chicago and Miami and Denver and San Francisco. And, you know, we're getting like in major markets. You know, this little and drive time. I mean, that's the holy grail. That's yeah. what that's so what you want. That was the beginning. Uh, Al called me. He was still in school. He w- he was going to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is in the central coast of California. Um, and he was just wrapping up. He was getting a d- degree in architecture. I believe mm-hmm. he, he uh, has a bachelor's in architecture. And uh, he called and said, oh, you remember that thing we did? Oh, I, com- I forgot the most important part. You can edit this in. <laughs> yeah. So after we did, after we did this uh, Another One Rides the Bus thing, you know, we played it on the air. And, you know, we're saying our goodbyes at the end of the show. I, I said, uh, you know, you, this, this is a lot of fun. You should have a band. I'll be your drummer. He says, okay. <laughs> so we exchanged phone numbers. So fast forward to uh, st- the song's getting played in drive time. He calls me. He says, this thing's like all over. I've, I've, I've got myself a manager. I'm going to be home in January. I want to record a few things. We're going to take the another one rides the bus. So we're going to put out an EP and we'll we'll uh, shop it around and, you know, kind of are you in? Right. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And that basically, it kind of grew and grew and grew and grew. Right. Uh, it wasn't long before we had uh, uh, a deal to record uh, an album at Cherokee mm-hmm. Studios on spec. No deal, no label deal, yeah. no nothing. Just we had, and and that uh, that came about. And Rick Derringer was the producer. Now that came about because Al had written a parody called "I Love Rocky Road" for Joan Jett's "I Love Rock and Roll." Yeah. We weren't recording it yet, but he wanted to get permission to record it so he could air it on the Dr. Demento show. Now, Joan Jett didn't write that. The writer of that song, one of the writers, was a guy named Jake Hooker mm-hmm. uh, out of New York, actually. And Jake was in a band, I can't think of the name of it, but way back, I want to I say the Mosquitoes or some kind of, something like that. Right. And he was a co-writer of I Love Rock and Roll. So in giving permission, he said, oh, well, this is, you know, of course, Al supplied him the lyrics. Uh, and he, he said, uh, well, this is... You know, how would you guys like to record? One of my clients is Rick Derringer. I can get him to produce you, and we'll try and get some spec time and, and record this and, and try and get an album going, try and get this right. thing going. So that was the start. I always wondered that about those songs, how hard they are to get cleared. Well, the the, uh, the permission is about, well, one, you don't want to just put something out there and try and make money on it without including the writer of the song. So even though Al's just using the the music, and he's got new lyrics, he still has to get, prefers to get clearance for the, the music, which means, you know, will you split, you know, the royalty right. 50-50 with me? Because I'm right. doing lyrics, you've got the music, and, and we'll just, you know. So it's more of a negotiation mm-hmm. to, to set up the figure right. than it is... Clearing the rights and the, just taking... Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's sort of a fair use thing, but, but then again, when you put something out there and you're making money, that's not fair use anymore. Right. So you do have to, it has to be sorted out. And even over the years, and Al's had very few people that have said no. Right. Or have, have not agreed to the rate, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, which has been good. I mean, I don't think we've missed anything that, that could have been a giant hit right. because someone turned Al down mm-hmm. uh, for that reason. Um, Michael Jackson finally turned Al down yeah. in like 91. Uh, we had, uh, I would we, imagine that, that the first one was hard to first, get to. Well, eat, eat It was easy. Well, mm-hmm. Michael, Michael had a great sense of humor, I'm okay. told. And, and Eat It was easy to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, sold a lot of records back when records were selling. That came out in February of '84, mm-hmm. and and that album, well, that album's a platinum album. Yeah, and uh, he agreed a few years later to let Al do uh, "Fat" for yeah. "Bad." Yeah, that was. And Al came that's back. The, that's the one I that I really remember. Like, and, and that I, was on. Like, I mean, because I, I, I was born in '81, so. Okay, so you were you were young. You were you yeah. were in the in the right age range. Yeah. So I remember when when uh, when Fat came out, and that, I mean that was everywhere. And it was a big hit. Yeah, I mean so it was on MTV. So and, oh you know, sure, yeah, sure. 
Uh, I mean, they used to promo the the debut, the premiere of Al's videos. I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah. Al would go on and do a two or a four hour thing called it Al TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, by the way, before David Lee Roth had Dave TV, <laughs> Al was doing Al TV, and uh, uh, and and so uh, uh, th- these were big events. Yeah. And and the whole Al TV thing was just he wasn't just hosting MTV stuff. He had like put together a show. Mm-hmm. I mean, if MTV was smart, they'd put that stuff out there again. Probably clearing all the rights for all of the videos and those things wouldn't be that easy. Yeah. But uh, the fans would eat it up. Mm-hmm. So 1988, Fat again a big hit. That album also went platinum. Well, Al returned to the well one more time in '91 to do. Michael had a big hit with Black or White. Yeah. And Al wanted to do Snack All Night, uh, which. In, in Michael's, uh, fortunately, Michael said, well, you know, this is a, well, this is a very, it's a very <laughs> personal song to him, the, the message, you mm-hmm. know, the, the whole social, cultural thing, and he didn't, he didn't want any distraction from that. So Al, you know, had to abandon that. Now, we did do it live. We could right. do things live that we can't really issue yeah. for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did do a live version. And, and honestly, I don't know that it would have been the, the hit, hit that the song that replaced it instead, that Al was sort of had to now find a new, what was going to be a single for mm. that album, uh, he went to uh, uh, Kurt Cobain. Oh, uh, yeah. And got Smells Like Nirvana. Yeah. Which was a big hit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, with all of these, with all of the sort of hits we have and have had, it, it, everyone sort of heralds it as, as a comeback, even though it's just, well, we had you know a couple of hits on the last album that was out two years ago. You know? Yeah. And if you disappear for more than a year or two, or maybe because it's the whole novelty aspect of what Al is, is known for, right. that, that people don't think, you know, it's like, oh, wow, he had a hit. Wow, that's amazing. Well, he came back from his hit from last year. From my hit a year ago? A yeah. platinum album. Wow, that's his first platinum since his last platinum right. last year. Or the uh, one before, yeah. Or the one before that, or the five before that. So... Because Michael turned him down, and again, it wasn't a publishing issue. It was mm-hmm. just, a, no, I really, I'm going to keep that song for myself. And that, that forced Al into this other song, which arguably was a much bigger hit yeah. uh, than, than Snack All Night would have been, mm-hmm. I, I think. So what's the approach? I remember watching a special on CBS Sunday Morning that, mm. that Al was on. And I love that show, but it's like I, I watch, my wife and I watch it every Sunday. And, um, and he was talking about the idea of you know, being serious but it being comedy at the same time. So for you, how do you approach it as a as a drummer? Because it's a comedy element, but I mean, you guys are playing. I mean, it's yeah. it's you know, it's not like a you know, like you said, there's there's novelty to it. Well, the but, novelty the novelty is is primarily in the lyrics. Right. If you take the lyrics off on most tracks, it's a straight track. Right. Uh, originals, the parodies, whatever. Now we get into some funny business on these polka medleys we do. Mm-hmm. And we do things in, in the polka medley that polka bands don't really do. We have sound effects and, and sure. just, you know, wacky stuff going on. But that's that's the novelty of that. It's another level of novelty beyond polkifying rap songs, <laughs> rock songs, pop songs, dance songs, whatever. Right. Uh, and the polka medleys, by the way, are, are among my favorite because they're just, it encompasses a whole lot of stuff and just gives, and it's just straight lyrics, mm-hmm. but it's just we've polkified everything. Right. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's a lot of fun to play. If, if you like playing a two beat for four and a half minutes, right? Which I do. Sure. Does, uh, it, does it feel like a concert, or does it feel like a, an entertainment show? It's it's a concert, but it's entertainment, mm-hmm. and and meaning it's a show. It's not just a concert, and right. it is it is entertaining. I, you know, and I never knew that, and I don't just say that because well, I'm in the band, so I, I have to you know sure. stick up for what I do. Uh, we did our first live, our commercial live video in '99. 
And I sat down and watched it and got to see what we do and hear a proper mix from the audience's perspective, right. which I have, I would have no idea what that is. And it's, and I watched it and said, I, I see why people keep coming to the shows. Yeah. I see why this keeps getting bigger. Uh, we, we did another live video in 2011 and uh, um, in Massey Hall in Toronto, actually, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. And, and I watched that and it's like, man, we, I, I see why you know, people will follow us around from concert to concert. You know, it's a really good show. You don't have to really even be an Al fan. It's, there's video, there's costumes. It's like a Broadway show, right. but it's, it's a lot more rock and roll mm-hmm. and it's more music based. There's not really dialogue per se. And I don't think anyone's been able to do what you guys have done. I mean, even at a even at a smaller scale. Not, no, no. There's there's room for one act at a time right. doing what we do. You know, whether it was way back, it would have been Spike Jones, later Tom Lehrer, Stan Freeberg, uh, Alan Sherman, Smothers Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Cheech and Chong really qualified per yeah. se, but you know, musically, it, it's been Al. Yeah, and it's been Al for thirty some. You know. Well, four decades. Yeah. It's just amazing point. to me that, that you guys have had that much commercial success and but and are respected on both sides of the of the coin, you know, from a comedy perspective and musically. Well, finally. Know? Finally, musically. Yeah. I mean, on the comedy thing, it's like, oh, well, Al just writes songs about food and, and there's a lot of wacky lyrics and stuff like that. And, and over the years, Al got much more insightful, mm-hmm. much more incisive, uh, you know, with, with a little bit of social sort of commentary. Not even where you could tell which side of the coin he's on. Yeah. But just he would just sort of some of his thongs, songs make you think. Mm-hmm. You know, they're funny, but it's like, wait a minute. He's, Isn't there a grammar song? There's oh, there's a song about that which is actually I learned a lot from this I, song. I, that's, it's yeah, word that's crimes. It was on this past album, yeah. a parody of uh, uh, Blurred Lines mm-hmm. by Robin Thicke and uh, Pharrell is in that, and uh, and that's actually a great video and a great song. It is and a lot of fun to play. Even though it's literally it's one of those things that it's it's a one bar loop, but it's actually a four bar loop because mm-hmm. the the things are placed a little bit differently in each bar, but it's a one bar part for the entire song. Uh, we run a percussion loop on that. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't really sound good. Mm-hmm. Which I and I, I do all the programming and all the albums. Oh, so wow. I've got all of that stuff. I can make the loop the way I want to hear it on stage. Uh, I make the loop the way it need, needs to be heard out front. Because mm-hmm. in concert, at a show, it's different. Sounds different. It's a different mix than you would have on the album. Right. S- sort of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you you want it to all be heard, but certain things need to come across or not come across in a concert situation. Mm-hmm. And depending on the venue, uh, the mix may be adjusted a little bit. And this is all, I mean, I'm guessing that you're just learning all this, you know, as you go along. And you yeah. start figuring things out, what works, yeah. what doesn't work. And, what and, I've, work and I've had to, I've, I've sort of been forced to grow. I mean, nobody had to tell me, but I knew that if I wanted to stay in this, or if I didn't want a keyboard player or a producer to take over my duties, that I needed to do this stuff on right. my own. So I was programming. I bought I bought a drum machine um, mm-hmm. when they had machines in '85. Uh, was my first machine a Yamaha oh, wow. Yamaha RX11. Which machines don't have perfect. They have perfect time, sort of some of them, but they don't have a perfect feel. The RX11 had a certain feel, and it was a very it was almost a clunky feel. But I could always tell when I was listening to the RX11 versus some other machine. Uh-huh. Is that I knew, you know, and sound-wise, back in the days when this machine had a certain sound and this, you know, you could tell a Lin from a DMX, yeah. from a Yamaha, from a Roland, mm-hmm. any of the Rolands. Now, well, now it's just all samples. Yeah. You don't know. Uh, but I knew that I had to grow. I had to, uh, I had to learn. Th- I had to learn to hear parts in songs. 
the way I never, I had to listen to songs in ways I never did before. Right. Which, which is a good thing, because I actually, uh, you know, now I can appreciate songs. It's not just, things aren't just black or white for me. You know, mm -hmm. I can, like, hear what goes into a song. Sure. And, and uh, not that I like songs, you know, not that they get an A for effort. I mean, it still has to sound good for right. me to like a song. But I know what goes into it. People mm -hmm. talk about, oh, these, you know, you, th these dance songs and stuff, they're just programming. They're putting loops together. So, no, there's more, way more to it there's than that. a lot that. more than that. You, right. you have to be a composer. There's, you, you couldn't do that stuff. Right. And as much stuff as I've dissected, it would probably be difficult for me to go in and create something for a dance track, mm -hmm. you know, without just copying something I'd already done. Because I still don't have that creative side. There's yeah. a lot to it, and I appreciate that. So I've, I've gotten a whole new appreciation for a lot of different types of music because of what goes into it. It's, yeah. it's some pretty serious stuff. Mm -hmm. There's some major stuff. You don't just slap things together and it works. <laughs> it definitely sounds yeah. a lot easier than it is. It's, yeah. It sounds, well, it does sound easy. Right. And, and only when you go, well, we have, we have to dissect these things. We have to backward engineer songs. So we have a, a whole different thing. It's not like, well, the part sort of goes like that, so I'll do that. It's like, no, this part goes like this, and it's panned here, and there's a, a certain effect on it. I like to make sure the, I put the effects right. on to a certain extent. And, and there's some cowbells going here, but one of them's a little bit pitched down. Mm -hmm. So it's a different sample. And now you, and, and you start hearing things. When you listen, you, you hear. Right. And Al is, is, I don't want to say he's a taskmaster, but he's very persnickety. He's very right. uh, meticulous. Mm -hmm. And we're all very meticulous as well. I mean, it was a, he didn't have to tell me to do that. I just, I'd always been that way. Mm -hmm. But he took me into areas as, as music production in general grew. And we started copying, uh, you know, parodying those songs and doing songs, originals in the styles of new production techniques and right. things like that. We all learned. We had to learn. We were forced to learn. We mm -hmm. were forced to grow. Uh, it, had I not met Al, I would literally, I probably never would have had a machine. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be playing drums, I hope. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I, I wouldn't be as far along, uh, you know, as, as he was able to take me, as, as I knew I had to go. Right. So I, I, I've learned a lot. And as far as... The music and, and the lyrics, you know, one's funny, one's not. Uh, you know, the, no, the music is, is very straight ahead. Mm -hmm. you, know, you could take all the tracks we do and, and maybe put different straight lyrics on them and nobody would know they had come out of Al's brain. Right. Well, and it's easy to look at, at Al and say, okay, this is, just, this is just this goofy, funny thing. But it, and I already knew this anyway, but after watching that, that CBS Sunday morning is that, like, I mean, he's, the guy's a genius. Oh, he's, he's on it. He's a great producer. Yeah. He's a great director. He knows what he wants. Mm -hmm. He knows when he's got it. There's no, you know, well, let's keep doing stuff until till it sounds right. It's like, no, I, I want it to be this, and then as soon as you got it, great, move on. Right. And and that carries over into his directing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the problem with a lot of directors is they, they don't always know what they want, so they don't know when they got it. So they'll get something, they'll, they'll shoot something a couple of times. Oh, that looks great. Uh, let's try it again. Or let's try something different. It's mm -hmm. like, you don't even know what you want. You're right. You don't know what you're going and, for. And, so. and Al, Al knows what he wants. Right. And, uh, and we're pretty much uh, Steve, uh, Steve J on bass, Jim West on guitar, Ruben Valtier on keyboards. Uh, we're all pretty much on, on the same page with Al. Sure. We know uh, when he says, okay, we're doing this song, we're going to bump the tempo by two beats a minute, uh, the key's going to stay the same, we're going to uh, truncate the intro, and we're going to you know, do, we're going to build an ending on it. And we know how to, we can all separately in our own homes program what we need to program. You know, once we all know the tempo, okay, we're going to have a two-bar count-off, whatever it is. And then we literally, if we want to show up in the studio, if we don't want to email the parts, we literally show up and it all goes into one unit, 
and we, we see it all come together for the first time. Right. But we all know exactly what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He's, it's very, very rare that Al will say, that's not what's on the record. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's only in hindsight have I found one or two things that it's like, I don't know how I missed that. Somehow I missed it. And somehow Al missed it, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and out of, out of you know, 150-some-odd songs, I don't know, it was 14 albums with, 14 studio albums with an average of 11 songs each, maybe 12 yeah. songs. That's a lot of songs. Yeah. Um, very, very few would I go back and, and like to fix something. Oh, yeah? You know, very, that's, very That's few. a bold statement, too. Well, it's, that's because I worked really hard getting it right the first time. Yeah. Because uh, when we bring it into the studio, if it's not right, uh, it, everything comes to a halt while, while that person goes off and makes it right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. And, and so we, there's a lot of pre-production. There's a lot of homework. So when we come in the studio, now uh, we rehearse as need, as need mm -hmm. be. The demo process is, is very thorough. Al does a demo that we get to hear. The band does a demo with Al that he gets to peruse some more, and then we go into the studio. We may rehearse one more time. Mm -hmm. There may be a few things we work on in the studio, but when we go to record it, uh, it's one, two takes, and then we move on. Hmm. You know, we can easily cut six tracks in an afternoon. Homework is so vital. But only because we put in 100 hours before that. Yeah. And uh, uh, there was, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you one instance of one time somebody did not have the part right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to hear this. And he will not be listening to this podcast. Our, our keyboard player, in his defense, in our defense, he was still sort of new. Mm -hmm. He was he was kind of new. He's He's been with us since 91. Oh, okay. So he's the new guy. So in, uh, I guess, early 99, we're, uh, we're uh, recording Don McLean's American Pie, mm -hmm. which became The Saga Begins. Mm -hmm. And that was about the new Star Wars movie that came out at, at that uh, particular time. In fact, Al had a lot of, he had gone online and found a lot of sort of rumors about what was happening and had a bunch of ideas together, went to see the movie, got, maybe got into a premiere, and then finished up the lyrics like immediately. And like within a day or two, we were in the studio. Oh, wow. To, with, with his correct lyrics. <laughs> so Ruben, he, he knew the drill about, you know, when we're doing a parody, you know, you listen to the original and this is what we're doing. If there's any changes, we'll tell you, but those are the parts. All right. And he didn't quite have it together. It's a very sort of a rambling, very rubato piano and vocal intro mm -hmm. on, on American Pie. And he didn't have, he didn't have the rhythms quite down. And, and they went back and forth with it for a little while until it's like, get out. We're going to move on. We'll, we'll get your part tomorrow. Go home. You've got to learn that part the way it is on the record, period. That's, you know, that's what I want. No questions asked. And, and he was basically, get out of the studio, and we just, we went on to something else. Wow. Uh, I'm sure he went home thinking, <laughs> I'm gonna, I, I got to learn this or I'm going to lose my job. Well, uh, he's still with us, so uh, he, he did happen. learn it, and he did not lose his job. That's good. So he's, he's a, and he's a great keyboard player. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, he's. He's a great player. He just he's uh, he writes his own music. He's mm -hmm. got a he's got an agenda. In fact, the other guys they write their own music as well, and it's all good stuff. But they've got it's got to be very. Uh, there's got to be a certain discipline when you create right. to play you know pop songs. Mm -hmm. You know to play somebody's version of somebody else's pop song and and uh, and know that that's where you're going to make a million bucks. Yeah. I don't have, maybe I'm blessed that I don't have a melodic agenda. I just want to play drums. <laughs> I'm not trying to write songs. I'm not trying to front a band. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy doing exactly what I'm doing. What you do. And the other guys are doing that. I'm perfectly happy doing it. And I know they'd, 
I hate to say it, but they would rather be doing their own stuff. Well, a lot of yeah. guys are that way. Yeah. That's yeah. why uh, Jimmy Page left the Yardbirds. I mean, yeah. and Eric Clapton left the, left the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck left the Yardbirds. Yeah. I mean, that's they wanted yeah. to do their own thing. Yeah, of and course. That's, and, and I understand that. I just want to play drums. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'll do this until, you know, one of us dies. Right. Right. You know, hopefully, well, I don't hope either of us go before the other. Right. Hopefully, we'll be in a bus on our way to, to you know, the Hollywood Bowl or something. <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't say that. No, we were in a bus on the way to Hollywood Bowl, and, and nothing happened. So uh, well, you're good then. That's fine. We're good. <laughs> so you've been doing it for it's it's 37 years without. Um, yeah. And one of the interesting things that, that we talked about before we hit the record button was the idea of you know doing this full time versus working a day gig. And and mm -hmm. as I mentioned to you, I I want to get the the message out that. It's okay to play drums and work a day gig. It's not you're not any less successful oh, no. if you oh, work no. a day gig, or you're not you know any less of a musician. And and people wear it as a badge of honor, saying all I do is play drums or all I do is play yeah. guitar. Yeah. And so and so, no. tell me your take on it because well, we had talked about it. Well, I, you know, I've early. I've had day jobs in my life, but I had a, a job concurrent with Al coming up. Uh, in fact, I ended up working at Westwood One, mm -hmm. who's the Dr. Demento show syndicator at the time. And uh, I, uh, I became the office manager, facilities manager, purchasing manager. I mean, I was, I was kind of running the place. Right. And uh, evidently, I did a good job because when it was time to go on the road, uh, they let me go. I'd get a leave of absence and I'd come back three, four months later and, and go right back in. You know, one time I, I had quit. And they called me two weeks into the tour and said, uh, "Kid, when are you going to be back in town? We'd like you to come back. Uh, we're going to offer you a new job and a new salary." And I, you know, that was when actually I became office manager. I, right. I was—I wasn't even working there, and I was given a promotion. <laughs> so I came back and just—and this went on for. That's a job you keep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, well, I, I did. This went on for 14 years, wow. and it was concurrent with. Gold, I mean, I had my gold and platinum albums sent to Westwood One. Because right. that's where I was five days a week. Mm -hmm. Had uh, you know my my equipment and stuff and drum sets and stuff. Uh, you know if I need ordered gear from somebody, I had it sent there. Right. I mean, and it was widely known that I worked there. I was also playing in several bands in town. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've always been in several bands. I'm still in several bands. Right. And and uh, you know most of them had day jobs as well. So really, nights and weekends were the only time anyone could get together. Anyway, it would have done me no good, and I would have had no money to sit at home five days a week. Right. You know, there's no way I could have taken that time and promoted myself into something better if right. I'd taken those eight hours five days a week and gone out and, and pounded the pavement. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. Right. You know, yeah, you have to be diligent, but it doesn't happen during those hours necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, devoting yourself, you can devote yourself 100% five nights and, and two days a week. Mm -hmm. You know, I did. And the, you know, the idea of, well, I gotta, I gotta make sure that my schedule's open because, you know, if this thing happens, I just, just cross that bridge when you come to it. Well, yeah. Let it get to the point where you're forced to quit your job. Well, sure. You and know? there's a lot of places. Well, this was a place that, that uh, you know, fortunately, there was a relationship there uh, with Dr. Demento. In fact, Weird Al worked at Westwood One. He got uh, me in there because nice. you know, he came back from school and needed a job. So Demento, Demento got him in there. He got me in. Uh, in fact, we'd already cut our first album. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I went to work there about five, six months later. So the album comes out after I'd been there a short time. We do about a two and a half week tour. So I took a short leave of absence. I'd already, I started in the mailroom. I'd already gotten a promotion out of the mailroom, like in the first few months. Right. And, uh, and they, they were like, what are we going to do without, without, you know, John, you know, here? Yeah. They say, well, he's he's got to come. He'll, he'll be, it's only two and a half weeks. We'll let him come back because you know it's better than trying to get someone new in. You know, because yeah, I, I just when I'm at work, I'm 100% at work. Right. And when I'm on the road, actually, when I was on the road, I was about 90% on the road, and I had a pager 
back in the days of pagers. Yeah. And and uh, I was available, even mm. though I wasn't on salary, I was available to be reached, to talk to vendors, to talk to my guys who were working, whatever it was. Right. Uh, I was I could be reached, and, and that was just sort of part of my uh, that was just part of my deal. Yeah. And I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. You know, it's just like you were well, never like one foot in, one foot out. Sort no. of like, oh, I got to get out of this job. No, and no. When I was in town, I was I was at Westwood One. You know, after hours, I was with my other bands. Mm -hmm. If if I was doing something with Al, I had a two, three, four month block. You know, right. that was arranged well in advance. Right. And and uh, again, this went on for fourteen years mm -hmm. until eventually uh, I did get to a point where it's like, well, I, I think I've made enough money because I had a year round paycheck. I mean, right. I, I was always working. People would have died to be in my shoes. Yeah. So I, I feel anytime you're in an envious position, you're doing the right thing. Sure. Also, I, I like to eat, you know, and pay rent <laughs> yeah. and put gas in the car and, and buy cymbals and, and buy sticks and things like that. I mean, I, you know, I have expenses, you mm -hmm. know, maybe buy a nice shirt once a year. Yeah. And you can't do that just working in clubs, mm -hmm. you know, not the way I was anyway. So eventually I got to, in 96, uh, came back from the road and it's like, you know, I'd, I've been gone long enough. I don't, I don't need to go back. I think I'm okay. I think they're okay if I don't come back. Back, yeah, and we just sort of parted ways, mm -hmm. and and that was it. So I've been not doing a day job since '96. Right. If that were to come up again, uh, where where I felt I should or, or want to do something, want to work some somewhere, I would have to make it clear up front. You know, there's going to be some times I'm going to want some time off. Yeah, you know, uh, if that means not hiring me at all, then understood. You have a business to run. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but I think there's places if I was going to get a job, there are places I could work. Yeah, you know, there there are companies in L.A. music companies. Mm -hmm. There are if I wanted to work retail, I could certainly do that. I could certainly go to an office, and uh, you know, but uh, management skills haven't really changed much in 20 yeah. years. I could certainly waltz right back in and, and do that. You mm -hmm. know, I could probably go work for the city. I mean, there's any number of things I could do if I needed to. Right. Uh, I'm very privileged and, and happy that I don't. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody's in that situation. Those that aren't and refuse to get a day job, uh, I just, I'm not sure what to say to them because yeah. there's no excuse for that. You know, you, you got to eat, you got to buy sticks and heads, you know, you got to, maybe you want to go out to dinner with friends, maybe you want to, you know, get a, a shirt pressed, you know, maybe you want to pay for your internet access, you know, there's yeah. any number of reasons you need to have an income. Yeah. Maybe you want to live somewhere. Yeah. There's, coincidentally, I'm looking to rent, uh, you know, this rehearsal spot and it's a big spot and it's, you know, it's upwards of almost a thousand dollars a month. So I was like, oh, let me find a couple people to go in, you know, and I was like, okay, I figured it out, it'd be like 120 bucks person or something and everyone's like no I can't afford I can't I can't I can't afford it not that I'm saying that wow you know but I'm yeah. saying I'm just thinking if that's if you're in that position and you're trying to do this as a living yeah. or you you take this craft seriously you need to go out and make some more money yeah. so that you can pay for your rehearsal place and yeah. pay yeah, for your you have, new drawings you know, if you haven't got four bucks a day right to have a place to pursue but, your craft right that's not good mm -hmm. and I, I don't. I, it's always bothered me, and I and I struggle. I personally struggled with that for a little bit, and it was like, this is stupid. Why? Why do I even care about this? I'll if I need to work, I'll work. You know, yeah. I, I'll make well, money. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure I invented this little saying: starving for your art is highly overrated, <laughs> and and I, I I would never do it. Yeah. And I would never do it again. Mm -hmm. If uh, if the Al thing dropped off for whatever reason, and I got a few years till retirement, and it's like, well, what am I? I can't spend my money slow enough. You know, right. I, I need to go out and have some income. I'll go do it. Yeah, I'm not going to starve. I'm not going to be, you know, funny and say I'm the great Bermuda. I don't need to, you know, I'm I'm a full time musician. I'll I'll do all the gigs I already do. Right. And and uh, I'll have income. 
Mm. You know, I'll, I'll do that. Again, I, I'm very privileged. I don't have to do that right now. Right. Uh, if I did, I would certainly do it. I would happily do it. You know, and and I tell other people to do that. Yeah. You know, star starving for one's art is highly overrated, and and that's the truth. I am with you 100. percent And I'm not starving. So I... <laughs> Me neither. It's not worth it, like you said, to starve for it. It's, it's, no. it's overrated, and you and should just learn to read music and go get a job. Yeah. <laughs> Back in a moment with Bermuda, but first a word from the sponsors. And I ask that you support the companies who support this podcast because they keep it free for you. They are the ones who are keeping the lights on here at Drummer's Resource. And by that, they are keeping it free for you and everyone else, which is an amazing thing. The first sponsor is DW Drums. They've been with Drummer's Resource since the beginning. They believed in the vision of what I've been trying to do. And they support drumming initiatives like this all over the world. Not only that, they're great people. People. They're like a family over there and they make amazing instruments. And it's not just DW, it's DW, Gretsch, Gibraltar, LP. So please support them and help them by, you know, spreading the word about that brand. And that in turn comes back to Drummer's Resource and keeps this podcast free for you guys. Also, Casio Music. They have been in business for 70 years and they know how to get the right instrument in your hands at the right price. That's probably why they've been in business for so long. They're offering a special deal for Drummers Resource Podcast listeners. They're giving you 20% off site-wide if you spend 149 bucks or more. 20%. That's no small gesture. All you have to do is go to casiomusic.com, C-A-S, CIO.com and use the promo code POD20. That's C A S C I O.com and use the promo code POD20 and save yourself 20%. Now let's get back into it with Bermuda Schwartz. Let's quickly talk about uh, what you have going on now and, and, and what's working for the future. Oh boy. Well, I'm in. Uh I mentioned I've got a couple of long-term band relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, Al, it dates back to 1980. In 1981, I met a local guy, a guy named Rip Masters, mm -hmm. who uh, came out of Ray Campy's band, was doing rockabilly at the time, pre-Stray Cats. They, they sort of, you know, there was no commercial rockabilly scene. It was very much an underground thing right. in England, Australia, and, mm -hmm. and here in L.A. And uh, <clears throat> hooked up with him, and I've been playing with him ever since March, April of 1981. In fact, I'm playing with him tonight. Wow. Uh, and uh, record with him. I do artwork with him. He's a good friend of mine. Um, and and uh, he hasn't. He doesn't tour. He goes to Europe and does some stuff, uh, but he can't really bring a band over. Right. So not even one guy. If he could bring one guy over, it would be me. <laughs> and uh, but he he finds guys over there. I mean, it's yeah. fine. He's just he's one of those guys that's very meticulous about. He wants a certain snare. Right. It may not be my favorite snare. It is actually a great snare. Mm -hmm. There are other snares I like better. When I show up for anything with him or recording a gig, it's that snare. Period. It's got to be that snare. So weird. And and he'll he'll uh, you know humor me and listen to another snare. You know, at Rip, let me bring you. This is the snare I'm using on all the gigs in town. This is like my favorite. It's eight inch black beauty. It's right. brand new. That's my favorite snare. And and I brought it in, and he says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll listen. You know, I don't want to be too, you know, too. Uh, you know, inflexible. Mm -hmm. Okay, good, good. Listen to this. You know? <laughs> and and he's listening, and we cut one track on his new album with this. And and he says, but you've got the other snare with you. He's, yeah. You got my snare with you. I said, yeah, yeah. So I put that up. And, and it's not that I don't like it, but he likes it. Right. And it's about him. Mm -hmm. And frankly, on the album, it, it sounds great. 
you know, I would have to go back and, and listen very carefully to figure out which was my snare, right. the first snare, and that all the other tracks are this other snare. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I still working with him. There's a, a band, a blues rock band in town called Idle Hands mm -hmm. that I've been working with since 2005. Um, and we do uh, a fair amount of original stuff. And we've got sort of regular gigs opening up at some of the, there's there's a uh, company that owns some of the theaters here in town, right. some of the, the big clubs, you know, 1,000, 1,200 seaters. And we regularly go and open up for people, uh, Ian Hunter, Leon Russell, uh, Edgar Winter, Johnny Winter when he was alive, right. uh, uh, Dick Dale, Larry Carlton, uh, uh, I think, God, Eddie Money, uh, just a whole bunch of yeah. great, you know, Artists that are going around doing sort of the mid-level venues, mm -hmm. and we go in and we we open up for them, you know. And it's just so that's always fun. But we're doing our own gigs as well. Right. There's a couple of artists that I work with, and I just play with once a month. One is a, a local jazz guy who hosts a jam, actually in Old Torrance, and I've been going there about 20 years. And I'm his regular drummer at the hosting thing. It's the third Thursday of the month, and at that we're not doing jazz. He does. All sort. He'll do some jazz and some big bad things. He'll do some. We did Royals by Lord. We we'll do sixties things. Yeah. He'll he'll just like. It's it's a Whatever. real weird, it's a real strange mix. Yeah. And he may do a different style of whatever. I mean, it's really, there's no telling what to mm. do. And I got to a point where I didn't even want to know what we were going to do. He would just like call him out right before we did it. And I'd say, okay, what style? Right. And then I would just like wing it. And then I thought maybe it would help if I knew what we were doing. Because sometimes I'm really stumped. And so he gave me a list of the things we were doing, and, and it didn't help at all. So, <laughs> so I'm back to just winging it and being spontaneous. And then there's another group I've been with about six or seven years, Zero G Band. The leader of that group is a, uh, uh, she's a, uh, a captain on a United, uh, she's a United captain on an Airbus 320. Oh, wow. And she's got tenure with United, so she can book a year's worth of her dates. Uh, and there's a couple of places we play regularly. Mm -hmm. And she'll book the year in advance. And uh, and that way I know my dates too. Yeah. And uh, she's free for them. And and we just do we do 60s, 70s, 80s covers. <clears throat> and it's just two guitars, bass, drums. A uh, little weak on vocals, meaning I don't sing. Yeah. Uh, but everyone sings a little bit. But we're not doing anything terribly ambitious. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of Beatles things, a couple of Stones things. Uh, we do the dreaded Brown Eyed Girl. We do the dreaded. Uh, uh, you know, Wooly Bully, yeah. uh, Mustang Sally, mm -hmm. and I don't. You know, people talk about playing that stuff, and I hate doing that. Or, or we we need a twenty five dollar tip before we'll play that. It's like you know what? I just I'm just playing drums. Yeah, it doesn't matter what I'm playing. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't. I just if I can play enough, I enjoy the song all the better. Right. But if I if it's a song I wouldn't normally listen to, it doesn't matter. I'm playing drums. Yeah, I'm playing two and four mostly. You know, and that's and that's fine. And I'm, I'm getting paid hopefully. Yeah. You know, so I, I mean, I don't have I don't have that thing about you know I don't want to play Brown Eyed Girl. I'm sick of that song. It's like I, who cares? Yeah. You know, let, it's still let me music. Play. It's still playing drums. It's still music. Yeah. yeah. And more than that, the audience loves it. Yeah. If they ever don't get up and dance to Brown Eyed Girl, we'll stop doing it. If they ever don't, yeah, there's a reason why those yes. songs get played. All and not just not just the the people who who were from that era. You know, not just the people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. You know, there's you know, 20 somethings in there who know those songs and because yeah. they're good songs, they're classic songs. There's a reason bands do them. Yep. And and uh, whether they like them or not, it's because the people that pay for you to be there like them. Yep. And that's who you're there for. If you want to play for yourself, don't join a band. Yeah. 
go sit somewhere and just play music on your own. Yep. Don't don't try and be in a band and try and make money. Mm -hmm. You know, because you're automatically, you know, if if you're doing something, if something's not popular, if people don't want to hear it, there's there's no reason to do it. What's, yeah, what's the I point? I mean, you know, if you want to just satisfy yourself, that's fine. But if you're going out and trying to do something, you've got to do what people want to hear. It's got to be commercially. It's got to be yeah. viable. You know, yeah. it's it's original or not. It's got to be something people want to hear. Right. And and if they don't want to hear it, they'll let you know. Mm -hmm. But you can't be mad at them for that. And you also, and I know some people that are actually mad that that they think they, you know, that if anybody liked their original music, that they would be selling out. Suddenly, that's commercial, and they're a sellout. It's like, gee, what a perverted yeah, what? idea about being a musician. Jesus, <laughs> like, oh, I guess they're an artist. They're an yeah. artist. Yeah, that's it. I'm just a drummer. You know, I just <laughs> I play drums, and and uh, I enjoy playing drums, so that I don't have any conflicts. You know, I'm not trying to go out and. And uh, you know, do what Terry Bozio does. I mean, I'm not trying to do a, a drum solo show. I'm not trying to write songs. I'm not trying to front a band. Right. I'm, I'm doing everything I, I always wanted to do. I wanted to be a professional drummer. At right. age 12, I, I announced to my folks, I want to be a professional drummer. Right. We were already living in LA. In fact, we had just moved to LA, and I said, that's what I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. I, not having any idea what that entailed. And back in 1968, there was no concept of music videos. You know, I didn't know about going on tour. You know, I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. There were no machines, really, yeah. you know. I had no idea what being a working drummer meant. Right. You know, but I learned, and sure. I adapted, and I grew, and and that's why I can do things. You know, if there's guys out there, oh, I won't play to, oh, clicks. Clicks is another, let's talk about clicks for 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I have a problem with people that have problems with clicks. Uh-huh. And the problem is... Anybody who says, well, I can't, you know, I, I can't play to a click, music has to breathe. Well, you say that because you don't know how to work to it with a click. <laughs> if you, well, music shouldn't be perfect. I said, well, when you were listening to old Chick Korea and Zappa and that stuff, and Steely Dan, that stuff was perfect without yep. a click. You loved that, didn't you? Yep. You loved how tight and exact that was, didn't you? But as soon as you force somebody to do it, then it's wrong. Then music yeah. has to breathe. You know, some music can breathe, some music should breathe. Right. Orchestral stuff has a flow, mm -hmm. it's expressive. Some stuff can't breathe, some stuff can go either way. Yeah. But if you can't work with a click, you're not gonna work. Mm -hmm. And and I I like people that, that can't work with a click, because I get more work. I like people that overplay, because I, because like, I heard I heard two and four in there once. <laughs> I you know because I means I get to work. Yeah. You know it's I think people are astounded. Young drummers are astounded, and they they know who Buddy Rich is. You know yeah. they like they appreciate Vinny. They appreciate Terry. They appreciate you know some of the up and coming stars, the younger stars, and and they uh, some of them know you know you got to play it pretty straight. Mm -hmm. You know I I'm a big fan of learning everything you can and then not showing much of it to yeah. anybody yeah you know i'm a big fan of of being able to do everything and and understanding that you're not going to be able to do much of that and make a living mm -hmm. um you know I mean, you look at somebody like you know like a vinnie well you know, vinnie how reserved like i mean he can play anything any way he wants upside down inside out but you know he he doesn't play that way he just well no he just plays musically and it's Sounds yeah. good. And well, I think people would be surprised. You know, he's not doing burning for Buddy every night. Yeah. I think people would be shocked at how much he gets called to just do two and four. Yep. And, and, and it sounds and feels amazing. And it sounds great, and he's playing it real straight. And it's like, well, do you need Vinny to do that? Could you maybe Jim Kel throw Jim Keltner a bone? Or, <laughs> you know, Bissonette's in town. He'll, he'll come, yeah. you know, he'll work for scale. Uh, sorry, Greg. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, 
you know, the the thing is, when you get Vinny on a record, one, it it's you get it in one take. Mm-hmm. Two, he might he's got certain infl- it's like Ringo. It's like the way Ringo plays. You, yeah. know, you can play Ringo's parts, but you're not going to sound like Ringo. Right. Uh, you know, Vinny has there's a certain you know feel. There's a certain place he puts things. He works with the click great. You would probably never guess how much he works with the click. Yeah. Uh, but he does a lot of two and four. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, he likes to play drums. Uh, he probably likes to eat and probably probably uh, you know needs to pay rent or, or a house payment somewhere or yep. likes to put gas in his car. Yep. You know uh, he makes money. But you know what? He's actors have a saying. You know, and, but I'll paraphrase it. I'm a drummer. I drum. And that's it. Yeah. You know, should I go make a million bucks a week on the road with Al? And does that mean I can't come in town and, and work for seventy five bucks? Absolutely not. I go work for, you know, I'll go, uh, haul, haul my own gear, right. uh, play four sets, whatever it is. You know, drive home with all the drunks at one thirty in the morning. Yep. You know, because I like playing drums. I mm-hmm. drum. That's what I do. Yep. Uh, there's a saying in a book that I read. Uh, it's, it's called "Show Your Work," and he says that. Mo- most people want to be the noun, but they don't want to be the verb. So, you know, I want to say I'm a drummer, but I don't actually, I don't want to do the drumming. I don't want to do, you know, I want to be a writer, but I don't want to, I don't want to like, I don't want to actually write. I don't want, I, you have to sit down, you have to work, you know, put all the work into it. And I just thought it was a good way of saying it that, you know, a lot of people want to be the noun, but not the verb. Yeah, I just, I do want to drum. Yeah. You know, and, and if I, uh, if I don't have a gig or something for a couple of weeks, it's like it's you know I I, really, I need to bring a drum in and set it up. Yeah. I, I've got enough enough gigs and enough stuff going on where I don't even keep a kit in the house anymore. Yeah. I mean not set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I actually I did last time I had a kit set up. Uh, there were like t-shirts on the stool and there was mm-hmm. stuff on, stacked on it because it was like a place to put things. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a treadmill and a drum set. <laughs> right. Yeah, the treadmill also had stuff on yeah. it. Yeah. And and I was working enough where it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm not unless I need to actually learn something and work something up, I'm I'm in shape, I've got my stamina, I know all my parts, I'm not having to create anything new. Right. And and you know, I and I while I like playing drums, you know, I like just sitting and watching TV. I like surfing the net. I like, you know, going out and driving around to drum shops and music stores if I want. Yeah. I don't feel the the need to sit at the drums an hour a day or 30 minutes or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless some time goes by and then it's like, okay, bring the drums in. Yeah, I got uh, and, and sit down and just keep it. Because if I go to the next gig, the instant I sit down, it's like, oh, it takes me a couple of songs to sort of get mm-hmm. get the feel of the limbs working together. So there's a point where, where I know I've got to sit down and set right. of drums. But it's rare that more than 10 days or two weeks goes by that I don't have a chance to sit down and, and do a gig. In context, which is different than practicing, mm-hmm. doing a gig is is not like practicing. Practicing no, is not. some other thing. Yep. And and it's uh, and I like playing in the context of the way drums in my mind are, which is with other players. Yeah. You know, that's my concept of drums is in a band. Mm-hmm. I know they can be a solo instrument. You know, I appreciate Buddy and Gene and guys like that, and Terry and and Vinny and guys like that. It can sit down with no other players and just capture you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just, you know, that they're just doing not only amazing things, but it's melodic, particularly Terry can can play songs yeah. on his drums, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's, it's bless, his, bless his heart. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, he's probably my technical hero. Yeah. And I had met him, there's a, there's a, 
old story in uh, Al folklore of the time we opened for missing persons. Uh, in uh, it was actually April 9th, nineteen eighty-two. If you must know, and uh, two days before date. my birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday! Well, this was not a good day for us. Let oh. me tell you. So what happened is uh, you you can let this run, although it may not be an appropriate. Well, it's an appropriate. No, story. But we don't, I, I don't edit. Extra. We just run. Okay, so. Back in the day, and this was before the record deal, uh, the record deal, the, before even we recorded the first album, mm -hmm. uh, Al was played uh, when radio stations could play kind of what they wanted uh, on the morning show K-Rock here in town, mm -hmm. which is the alternative yeah. station, uh, played Al's stuff. I mean, you know, not on a steady diet. I mean, there'd be Depeche Mode here and uh, Echo and the Bunny Men there and stuff like that. And uh, but they played local groups and they played local artists on uh, you know throughout the day actually, so and they were playing Missing Persons before Missing Persons got their Capitol Records deal. Mm -hmm. So Missing Persons get signed to Capitol Records. Their uh, manager Ken Scott uh, thought it would be cool. They were going to do a big sort of a uh, I guess a, a, they did a twelve inch EP, uh, sort of a, a, an album release party at the Santa Monica Civic mm -hmm. uh, here in town. And Ken Scott thought, well, they're known on K-Rock. It'd be funny to have Weird Al open for Missing Persons. That'd be just, you know, kind of a light, fun thing. So we had booked that, and, and uh, you know, everything was all set. Now the, their EP comes out, and all of a sudden now the rock stations in town are starting to play. You know, they're serviced by Capital, of course. Mm -hmm. They're starting to play this stuff. It's a little edgy for some of them that are right. still playing sort of the classic bands. But... Now Missing Persons is getting known to another audience that doesn't know Al. And that was the crowd that showed up. It was the rock crowd. <laughs> and so we get up there. We're the opener. We come up, and uh, Al's got these velvet patchwork pants, an accordion, a blue Hawaiian shirt. I've got a big Hawaiian painting on my drum head, 26-inch kick. And uh, we come out, and and the, the fans don't know the, the fans. The fans. Missing Persons fans yeah. aren't quite sure what to make. And Al starts playing the beginning of It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, the Billy Joel song. Although our version is It's Still Billy Joel to Me. <laughs> uh, and I, I can't quote the words, but it's like a slam on Billy Joel's, mm -hmm. all his musical, you know, flavor of the month that he would go, you know, he had New Wave album here and yeah. all this other, you know, how, how much of a chameleon he was, but not in a good way. So it was a little bit of a, it was a bit of a slam. So, you know, here's a guy playing accordion, playing Billy Joel, and then singing different words to it, and they they were having none of that. <laughs> so, we stayed we stayed out. They were throwing things. They were yelling. It was just really. And, and any fans that we did have there were probably afraid to clap or, or say anything. So it was it was a pretty rough experience. Uh, did you play the whole show, or did you get booed off? Oh no, off? no, we, they, they yeah. tried to boo us off, and, and we didn't. Uh, we didn't budge. I mean, we were watching Al. If he was going to move, we would have just left. But no, we stayed up there and we did our like forty minutes or something. I mean, we, Jeez. Did, we did our. That's got to be brutal. It was. Yeah, it was. And uh, however, I did get to say hi to Terry, and he was a sweetheart, and, nice. and all uh, all that stuff. And and we, uh, when I'd run into him every once in a while over the years, you know, sort of chuckle about that mm -hmm. you know he so he felt bad that that happened but you know what that happens to a lot of opening acts though yeah and it's just it's a tough spot to be in there's very few sort of success stories where you know and i forget which which uh rock band it was that went out open for the stones and then like got noticed and got their own deal and right. and be i don't want to say it was guns and roses but it was or cinderella or what it was 
it was one of the one of the bands mm -hmm. did that and went out in that opening spot and actually overcame that whole thing and, yeah. and did and very well, well. And I think it comes down to you know if you're on the wrong bill, it doesn't matter how great of a band you are. If well, you put yeah. you know if you put a hip hop band that op opening for a country artist, it's probably not going to work that it's, well. Right. You know so. Or vice versa, or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's up to the up to the promoter to say, okay, let's put yeah, let's so, put some people that are at least close. Well, right. Well, Ken Scott, you know, at the time thought, well, K Rock audience. He, he just he didn't, and it Makes just sense. it just stuck with that, even though Missing Persons had evolved into the broader, yeah. you know, uh, the, the the mainstream of mm -hmm. the listeners. So yeah, it probably was not a good idea. <laughs> it, it may not have even been a good idea to begin with. Right. You know, they probably could have got some other. L.A. band that was more popular, mm. uh, they certainly could have got Boingo. Yeah. Uh, Boingo, you know, Boingo might have been too big at the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Plimsolls or, you know, there's, there's probably any number of other more appropriate. <laughs> but any, anyway, they thought it, it happened and that's it and we all remember the date. And uh, and you got a good story out of it. And, and there's a good story. And now yeah. I know your birthday is April 11th. Yeah, there so you go. So happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, what other funny things have happened on the road? You know, nothing, that's, that's one of the more notorious yeah. Uh, events and and you know we weren't so well known. I mean, we didn't even have an album out at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think anybody really noticed, other than the fact that we all tell the story, including Al. We all tell that story on behind the music and biography and in the book and and everywhere else. Yeah, it's widely known. The fans know that one. How many dates are you guys playing a year? We well with the number one album in 2014. Uh, the 2015 and 2016 uh, tours were were. Pretty uh, pretty stringent. I mean, we were doing five dates a week, sometimes six, and we were out for, and I kid you not, twenty two weeks straight without a break wow. in twenty fifteen, and I think seventeen weeks or eighteen weeks in twenty sixteen without a break. It's a lot. And and uh, yeah, and the only time we got home for any reason is if we happened to play L A. Right. Which uh, we actually did in the middle of both tours, or or towards towards the end of. Uh, 2015, we played the Greek theater, mm -hmm. and we're home for a couple of days, and then went to Europe to do a couple of weeks. And then uh, last year, in 2016, we were home for a couple of days surrounding two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, which was a pretty cool deal. Yeah. Now, it's, it's uh, I mean, that was a pretty amazing booking. William Morris has been booking Al for, yeah. for some years now, and has really gotten us into some great places. I don't know that we needed to do two nights there. <laughs> Uh, if we'd have done one night, we very likely could have sold it out. Mm -hmm. But we did two nights. We had about eight and a half thousand one night, and about eleven and a half the next night, which are good-sized crowds yeah, in L.A. Although in the Hollywood Bowl, which is I think eighteen thousand seats, you know, it's a little bit sparse, sparse, but it still looked really good. Yeah, and it was so cool to to be playing there. And then the other thing about those gigs, those nights, the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra played with us, which I think they do with a lot of the acts that come through. And I think really the reason is is because that's a bunch of orchestral members that if they're not working, they're not getting paid. Yeah. And if the, some band comes in and uses the bowl and they don't get to play, they're not they're making their scale. Yeah. So they were paid, of course, and uh, you know with proper conductor. Mm -hmm. and, and we got, and they scored uh, all of the songs we were going to do. They had no help from us. You know, they had tracks to work with. Mm -hmm. and, and they scored everything and sent Al. You know, this is kind of where we're heading, you know, sort of keyboard demos of what the orchestrations were going to be. So it wasn't a complete surprise. But we came in, we played a Friday and Saturday. We came in at Friday at 1 p.m. and ran through the songs with them. And it was just, it was perfect. That's awesome. Uh, and the conductor is, is a, a gentleman named Thomas Wilkins, who is uh, sort of the, the most popular conductor of the orchestra. I think he's mm -hmm. maybe the best known. Uh, 
he had to, now he and I are both on, on a, the, the track. There's a server that runs count offs and clicks and things like that, but right. not everything has a count off or some things are just spontaneous. So he had to keep an eye on me the whole time. So he's looking over his shoulder down at me. You know, of course we're facing the audience. He's facing the back of the bowl uh -huh. to the orchestra. So he, he and I are sort of in contact and he's watching for endings and things like that. And it was, it was very, very cool. That's uh, and I've played in in a couple of junior orchestras, mm -hmm. uh, so I mean I'm familiar with string sections and horns and percussion. You know I can play right. timpani and things like that, but this this was very very cool. I hadn't really done the the rock thing with a full on orchestra behind, and it was all mm -hmm. very tastefully orchestrated. Plus it's at the Hollywood Bowl, and it was at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. That's not the first time I was at the Hollywood Bowl, mind you. Yeah, uh, I I played there. I was in a band. And played there in uh, 1974 for the Battle of the Bands. The oh, L.A. Wow. County Parks and Recreation Department sponsored an actual Battle of the Bands cool. thing. I mean, so that was the legitimate. And and they there were a whole bunch of preliminary things that went on at the different colleges and stuff. And you worked your way up. And there were stage band divisions and vocalist divisions and vocal group divisions mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And uh, actually, the night we were there, Carlos Vega was in the Eagle Rock High stage band. Really? Yeah. Now nobody knew who he was. Right, of course. He was just—he was in school. Uh huh. And uh, I mean, if I had any idea, you know, I, I would have said, you know, Carlos, we're both going to be famous one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Don't play with guns. Yeah. Woohoo! That's sorry, Carlos. <laughs> uh, but but we, the band we were in, we tied for first in the combo division. Yeah. And and the uh, cool. the judges were Pete Christlieb and and uh, Tom Scott was judging and. Uh, uh, not Andre Previn, but uh, there were some like legitimate yeah. music judges. Mm -hmm. And one of our guys in the band, a guy named Jeff Rona, got the one of uh, only a couple of outstanding musician, uh, I guess, uh, outstanding musicianship for the night or something like that. And he went on to score stuff for some Hollywood TV shows and things like oh, that. Cool. And, and uh, he became very, he was, he's one of the guys who, working with Roland, I guess, was on the committee that invented MIDI. Really? In the early 80s. He's one of those guys. Jeez. So he went from the flute, like, into keyboards and electronics pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And uh, did, you know, well, within six, seven, eight years. And, and, and is doing very, very well. Good for him. Uh, so that was, and that was not the first time I played at the Bowl. A couple of years earlier, I was in a marching band that the police department sponsored, the LAPD Junior Band. I played, uh, uh, well, we called them Timp Toms back then. It was three, uh, like, like... Well, three concert toms, basically, yeah. and then moved to snare. And they had the <laughs> police department put on a thing for the families of the officers and stuff called Cops and Pops. And they would book the Hollywood Bowl for a day and, and uh, have different, uh, Roy Clark could come out and play. You know, they'd have a couple of legit yeah. stars. But a lot of sometimes instrumentalists and singers that were family or actually members of the police department would come out and, and perform. And it was just sort of a big event. That's cool. So, the band came out, this was 1972, so I was on stage at the Hollywood Bowl in 1972. Granted, nice. not very many eyes on me like they were with Al, where yeah. I was one of only five people on stage. But uh, that was the very first time. So, uh, and I hadn't even been back there, you know, since then. Wow. So it was, it was pretty cool. cool. And it was very cool. What a classic, amazing place. Yeah. We played uh, Radio City Music Hall. Mm, oh, uh, we that sold that out uh, uh, last uh, September. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was the last day of the tour. Uh, it was either September 24th, 25th, something like that. And then that was the end of, of uh, the uh, mandatory tour right? based on mandatory fund. Yeah. 
And uh, we, we sold out the Hammersmith Odeon in London. It's called something else now, but it's still the Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah. Anytime we played somewhere the Beatles played, I thought that was really That's cool. That's pretty intense. We played the Ed Sullivan Theater to do uh, Stephen Colbert and uh, The Late Show. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and, and of course the guys there are like, okay, well this, they had extended the stage and shortened the audience, but they still had the back wall that was the back of the theater at the time. And, yeah. You know, some of the older hands, oh yeah, that's where Ringo was right, about 20 feet back there is right there. John was here. You know? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> like the holy grail of, so, you know, and that was such a cool, anytime I could be somewhere any of the Beatles were at, it's really cool. Yeah. I uh, played Red Rocks. That's an uh, we, awesome we opened for the Monkees back in 87. We did their entire tour. Oh, wow. So we were the opening spot. So we got dragged along to a whole bunch of very cool places that we hadn't played before. Mm -hmm. and, and Red Rocks was certainly one of them. In fact, we haven't played it since. Uh, and, and, uh, and the Red Beatles had played Red Rocks. Right. So that was my first awareness of, of being on a stage where Ringo and, and the guys had played. And, and you know, that's uh, Ringo. I keep mentioning Ringo. Uh, major influence. Uh, on me in the 60s. Yeah, I'm him sure. and, and Hal Blaine, by way of uh, all of the stuff I heard on the radio, mm -hmm. you know, from drummers that, uh, from groups that didn't necessarily have a drummer. Yeah. Or where he subbed, you know, whether it was Paul River and the Raiders or the Association or whatever it was. Uh, so, I mean, I, I grew up listening to them and Gene Krupa, of all things. My parents coming from Chicago and, yeah. uh, you know, my parents were kind of into jazz and big band stuff. So there were, you know, I, I had sort of that education, some Latin LPs. Mm -hmm. you know. So I had a pretty, Pretty sparse before I was old enough to really get cynical about, you know, oh, I don't like this kind of music or jazz is dead or, or rock is dead or whatever it or is. Whatever, just, whatever's dead. Music, now. Yeah. music was music and drumming is drumming. Yeah. And so I appreciated all of that kind of stuff. I was just as happy playing "She Loves You" as as "Sing Sing Sing." Mm -hmm. You know, I remember one. I had the Gene Krupa story uh, soundtrack, and uh, also had an album called "Big Noise" from Winnetka, which was a live album. Uh, I'm not familiar with that one. That's uh, one of Gene's, you know, yeah. one of his albums. And, and I'm pretty sure Sing 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 was on there. Big Noise from Winnetka was on there. And uh, just just incredible. I didn't get into Buddy till much later. Yeah. Some drummers, I just I didn't have a concept of. Uh, John Bonham, I really didn't appreciate what he did till much later. Yeah. Uh, I hear that a lot, too, that people, you know, listen to it and then were like, oh, I didn't really... You know, yeah. I, 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 not that I, not that people didn't appreciate it. They just didn't. They didn't realize what they were hearing. Yeah, I wasn't really thinking about it. I thought yeah. I, I thought in terms of songs, not in terms of the drumming. Right. And and later when I began to to listen on a different level, uh, I really began to appreciate what he did. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that he's one of my favorite drummers. He's certainly, you know, I have an appreciation for him, for Keith Moon, mm. for Jim Keltner, for uh, you know uh, Charlie Watts. Yeah. You know, there's there's a ton of ton of guys. That are just, and they may not, may or may not be technicians. Yeah. You know, they just are. I don't. I don't. They think, feel good. They I make. I don't think the you need to be. You, you don't personally. need to be. That's the thing. You need to know it, but you need to not use it. I think yeah. in most cases, mm -hmm. there's precious few gigs out there for guys that are doing what Vinny does. Yeah. And he's got those gigs. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's doing them. Yeah. You don't need. There's only. Yeah. Vinny Cayu is already doing the Vinny yeah. Cayu. There's gigs. one room. There's room for one Vinny. Yep. There's room for one Weird Al. Yep. You know, and they're the guys doing it. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, there's guys that can do all that stuff. I, I pity them if they go out and try and do auditions and try and do all that stuff and show off all their mad skills. Yeah. If they're not supposed to be. Yep. You know, or if they if they're like me and they go into you know fill in for uh, Dave Garibaldi, you know, who was trying to take the A train. Whoa. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I won't play the funk. You know, and I'm trying to play two and four. Well, Ringo would have done this. Well, Ringo wouldn't have cut it in Tower of Power. Yeah. 
you know. That's, I mean, there's there's that end of it too. Of I mean, there's there's gigs that I would know to to not try and do. Right. You know, I'm not a jazz drummer by any. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm literally. I play I play jazz in Latin like a rock drummer plays jazz in Latin. Yep. You know, spang spang a lang. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and hi -hat. you know, and a little bit of the bell and the you know the. the yeah. I mean, very rudimentary. If I'm playing a cha-cha, it's by the book. Mm -hmm. A bossa nova is by the book. Mm -hmm. It is a bossa nova. A rumba is a rumba song. And there's no variation or feel. Or it's, yeah. and, and that's kind of how I approach that stuff. And therefore, I don't get called for it, nor would I accept like a, a, a progressive jazz gig. I mean, yeah. it's not what I do. I would not be, I would never work with those guys again. As soon as I moved to New York, <laughs> the first call I got was like this like big like bop gig. I was like, nope, I'm not the guy to yeah. do that. Well, yeah, and you got to be you you got to be a professional enough to know when to say that to somebody. Right. Just like you got to be professional enough to know not to overplay. Yep. Because the pros don't overplay. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're hearing something, uh, I I'm I do sort of a semi-regular article for Drum Magazine, mm -hmm. and and uh, one of my articles was on playing covers. And I don't just come from. I've I've always felt that if if a song is worth playing, it's worth playing correctly. Correctly. Correctly meaning the the reason that it's worth playing. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't try and do. You're not going to play better parts than Ringo played. You're not going to play better parts than Keith Moon or or Bonham or Hal Blaine or whoever it is, whether complicated or simple. You're not going to make it any better than you heard on the record. There's a reason it's on the record. It's because everyone agreed that's the part. Right. You're not you're not going to do it justice if you don't at least do that part or less. If you mm -hmm. can't do the part, do less. But never do more. You, you're not serving the song. You won't work again. Uh, you know, I, I talk about auditions, uh, and and uh, you know, go in and underplay a little bit. Don't try and you know, because they're not going to tell you if you're overplaying. They're not going to tell you. They'll yeah. just thank you, and it's like you know, and you'll never know. And they may tell you to give a little more. And well, say, right. Hey, you know, and can that's you open better. That up a little bit. That's yeah, better. Sure. If you go in and you're a little reserved, if you're not trying to shove it down their throat, they'll feel a little bit better, and then you open up a little right. bit. You know, but go in and, and always don't try and show your chops. If someone mm -hmm. says, "What do you do?" I play two and four. Yeah. Well, that's God. Nobody does that. <laughs> I remember I did, and as far as playing parts, there was I, I subbed on one gig about a dozen years ago. And these are the guys from the band The Rolling Clones, mm -hmm. which was one of the original, from like 35 years ago, one of the original Stones tribute bands here in L.A., very well known at the time. And they still worked a bit, but the guys, uh, when I, they, they play regularly and they would do just cover stuff, but mostly 60s, into the 70s a little bit, but not all Stones by any means, Herman's Hermits, Animals, Kinks. Paul Revere and the Raiders, uh, Roy Orbison, the Beatles, of course, some Stones. Uh, I think the most recent stuff they would do are very early 70s, like Three Dog Night, Shambhala, yeah. things like that. And all stuff, you know, and I came in cold. I hadn't met them before. I came in cold, and I, I know all those songs. All that stuff's in my DNA. Right. I just And I hear it like the record. Tempos, parts, probably even the key. Mm -hmm. I just, it's in my head. And, and we're playing, you know, everything's going swimmingly. And we're playing along, and we're playing... Uh, we got to get out of this place by the animals. And there's a part after the uh, chorus, you know, where it's, girl, there's a better life for me and you. And then the drums go, uh, you know, like, da, 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 da. and it, the transitions goes back into the, the verse. And while I'm doing that thing, you know, the, the leader turns around and gives me, shoots me this look. And it's like, wow, did I speed up? Probably not. No. Did I get loud? No. That, did I do something? I don't know what happened. You know, that's the part. Right. And I, 
I went out, at, and, the, and this is like in the very first set, so I'm just already under the gun. So I go out at the, at the break, and I said, what, what happened? You, you, you looked at me in the, the middle of the animals thing. He says, I've only ever heard that part on the record. I've never heard a drummer play that part. <laughs> and I was just subbing that night. I still work with him today. Really? Yeah. I just, it wasn't an audition, but I treat, I treat those things like they're auditions. I don't come in, I, I'm not trying to make the song mine. I'm trying to make it, you know, the Stones or, yeah. or the, Eric Burdens or the Beatles or, or the Monkees or whoever it is. Honor, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make it theirs. There. Yeah, I'm trying to make it theirs. And uh, I, I mean, that's, an, that's important. I think that, I don't know, I, I, have, I have my own opinion, but I don't want to, you know, push it on to anyone else. But I think it's, I think it's with the advent of, of YouTube. And I, I mean, I think that YouTube is great. And I think it's amazing. Yeah. And I wish yeah. that I had it when I was a kid. But I also think that that doesn't show you people just playing groove, playing for the song and realizing that, like, that's what you get hired for, not all of this other yeah. stuff. You know, and I think that's yeah. where it comes down to a teacher can lead you in that direction. I mean, do you teach? Uh, a, a long time ago, I taught. Yeah. I just, frankly, I, and I probably have a lot to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I can, uh, from, from all the things I've learned, especially about reading and just and, and certain techniques and things like that, I could get somebody into doing things much faster than I was brought into it. Right. Uh, frankly, I don't have the patience yeah. to, to do that. Uh, I don't think I could start someone from scratch yeah. the way I did 30 years ago. And and I don't uh, I don't know that I have that much to offer someone who's intermediate because they're probably not going to listen to me, you know. People when people want want to talk to me about drumming and stuff like that, it's usually not about playing the drums. It's usually about the business of being a drummer. Yeah. Because that I think I do very well. Mm -hmm. I'm not a bad drummer, but I mean I'm not known for for my technical skills. Right. I have a few tricks. Right. right. What I am known for is longevity in the business, uh, adapting, mm -hmm. uh, making the day job work not overplaying, not having to be told what to do. Right. You know, not needing much direction. Mm -hmm. And it's guys like that that work. Yeah. You know, the guys that, that know that don't have to be told, you know, certainly not more than once, they're the ones that get hired. Mm -hmm. You know, JR, Jim Kellner, you know, Gad, right. Vinny. Vinny, we know you we know you can do Buddy Rich. Yeah, just play your two and four on there. Yeah. And he does it and he gets his million bucks and goes out. Yeah. You know, the guys that can do what needs to be done and and songs have stuff that they need you can't the drummer certainly can't come in and take a song in a direction it wasn't meant to go right because he's not going to last very long and on you, that session or in the band or in the business and you talk about a lot of this in the in the stuff that you write for drum right uh yeah i've got different yeah. topics I, I talk about uh, audi you know auditions i talk mm -hmm. about jams you know networks and jam sessions networking right uh you know, click tracks, you know, preparing to go on tour, what to do once you're on tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, uh, and I've got a whole list of topics. I actually just started this about a year and a half ago. Okay. And I, I'm in about every second or third issue. Mm -hmm. And I've got about 20 more topics. Cool. I've, got, I've got about five more years worth of stuff <laughs> that I can talk about before everyone's forgotten. And, and then they'll read that again. Oh, yeah. I th he's talking about click tracks again. Yeah. In fact, the click track thing was my very first article oh, that I did for them. Because I thought that was an important enough subject, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know embrace the click. I think that was the the title of the article, and uh, so I can talk about. I mean, I, I've I've done several clinics, 
And I do it kind of from in front of the kit. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm, it's more of a, a lecture. It's more of a yeah. seminar. I mean, I, I may, I, I do sit down at the drums and, and we'll play something to demonstrate something I'm talking about. But I'm not doing a show. I'm not doing a master class. I'm not. I'm yeah. talking about the business. I'm talking. You know, everybody can play drums, but they don't know how to navigate the business. And you know, although there's not a record label business the way there was in the past, mm -hmm. there's still the business of being a musician. There's still yeah. how to interact with other players. You know, there's a, the approach that you have when you play certain styles of music. Mm -hmm. You know, there's attitude, there, you know, pro, pro attitudes. I mean, there's certain things that you don't learn from a book. Right. Or that, you know, nobody tells you when you're, when you're doing the guitar center drum off. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. those guys are amazing technicians. Yeah. I mean, they're amazing drummers. They mm -hmm. are. I don't know, you know, a few of them have gone on yeah. and done a few things. I think they would have done those anyway. Uh, I, I think a lot of them win the contest and then and then think, oh well this is what drumming's all about. And and they're gonna learn the hard way. Right. That you can't you can't do that solo on songs. Yeah. You know, you're gonna play a lot of two and four if you wanna work. If you wanna work. Uh, if, if you don't wanna you're certainly welcome to do it your way. Of course. Uh, if you want to be out there and you want to be viable, you've got to play what works. And whatever that is. It's mm -hmm. nine times out of ten it's gonna be two and four. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time it's gonna be you know, two and four and maybe, right. you know, it won't be much different than two and four. And then, you know, for anything more complicated than that, uh, they call Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> when Vinny goes, Vinny's, so, about, Vinny's about six months older than me. It's, so he's it's gonna, like play two and four and, <laughs> and Vinny. And, Vinny. Yeah, and Ringo, Vinny, Terry, yeah. and uh, two and four and uh, don't start for your art. And that's it. And that's and learn to read. Right. And I think that or I would I, I want people to go over because drum actually we have a very close relationship with the guys at Drum and Phil and everybody. Um, they actually distribute the podcast too. So I'd suggest that actually if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine, yeah. you can get a free six month subscription to Drum Magazine. Wow. They did that for the Drummers Resource oh, that's podcast cool. listeners. So that's cool. So if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine, you can get uh, six months free and uh, they send it to you or you can get digital and uh, and oh, your wow. articles will be in there. So I oh, cool. recommend that everybody read your articles. Oh, thank you. I may have to and do that. They don't send me the magazine. I go out and buy the magazine if I want a copy. Oh, man. You got <laughs> so, I could have, so I could have myself in print. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got six bucks. That's not a big deal. Yeah. But, <laughs> No, you know, I just, and, and Drum has evolved. Drum has become yeah. a very well-respected magazine. It mm -hmm. used to be, you know, sort of second fiddle to modern drummer. Yeah. And, and I always thought, well, it's, you know, it's aimed more towards kids or non-pros, or there's a lot of flavor of the month guys on the cover and stuff like that. And it's, and it's when I started reading it again, it's, it's a very legitimate, yeah. it's really, really good. And they got a lot of great contributors, not mm -hmm. just me. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of at the bottom of the list of, the, of their superstar drummers, but uh, they've got some, re some really good stuff to offer yeah. in there. Yeah. And I hope it stays in physical print. I mean, I'm old school, mm -hmm. so I like having a physical There's something about copy. getting it in the... In the mail. Well, yeah, there's or picking there's, up at the newsstand. Well, and being able to refer to it, and being yeah. able to, to skip ahead, and being able, you know, there's just it's a different experience. Yeah, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's some things that should just be on on a tablet or a phone or a computer, and there's other things you still need to have in your hand. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So check out Bermuda's uh, articles on there, and if they want to follow you, they want to keep up with what you you've got going on. What's the best way to do that? I've got uh, well, I'm on Facebook, as okay. is everybody. So it's uh, if you look up Bermuda Schwartz. Uh, there's really only one of me okay. on there, and I've also got BermudaSchwartz.com. Okay, is uh, has got all my uh, credits and a uh, bunch of photos and links and all sorts of other cool stuff. And uh, Al's site, which uh, I actually constructed his site in 1995. Really, I learned uh, to code. Nice. 
and uh, I still do a little bit of coding. Mm -hmm. And I, I built that site. It recently went to a WordPress format, so he can go in there if he has an idea at three he, in the morning. He can go in and mess with it. Right. Uh, but there's a bunch of bunch of resources there, uh, and that's at weirdal.com. And you can spell something I learned a long time ago. You can spell Weird Al either way: W E I R D A L or W I E R D A L. Now, the way you remember which way is the correct way is that old thing you learned in school: I before E except no. after C. Yeah. No. E, e before I. That's weird. <laughs> I made that up. I'm gonna, and I'll remember. And now I'll remember. Now you'll remember that yeah, forever. It works a lot better. At your at your leisure. Leisure is another one. Well, Bermuda, thank you again. Thank well, you for coming into Hollywood. I know you don't do it very. Uh, but this, very this often, was a so. treat. There you have it, the one and only John Bermuda Schwartz. Of course, for the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 294. Also, sign up for the mailing list. You get my ebook, Stick Control Variations, for free. And then you'll also be added to the list where every Monday I'll send you an email. I'm calling it Nick's Monday Mix. So it'll be the, the podcast that came out that day. And then also some other links that I think that you would dig. Stuff that I'm reading, some music that I'm listening to, and just uh, some curated content for you. And then also on Friday, I'll send you just a link of all the content that's been released from Drummer's Resource. So head over to drummersresource.com and you can sign up for that. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I will be talking to you soon. Peace.